for me, the best kind of writing is the kind of writing that is importantly personal. Like it really, there's something at stake in it and you can feel that there's something at stake in it for the author uh, themselves. But they are also thinking very, very seriously at kind of the highest level and in touch with the, the greatest minds of you know, past and present. Um, they're thinking, but the goal of that thinking and theorizing is ultimately to enrich their, their understanding of their own world. That's Johnny Thacker, co-founder and co-editor of The Point, a magazine of philosophical writing and humanistic thinking whose vision is, in the words of its editors, a society where the examined life is not an abstract ideal, but an everyday practice. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. In the fall of 2009, three graduate students at the University of Chicago's Committee on Social Thought, Johnny Thacker, Itai Zwick, and John Baskin, met in a basement pub to discuss their vision for a new journal of ideas. The general hope was, in our guest Johnny Thacker's words, to carve out a space for the philosophical essay in the tradition of Montaigne. Or, more generally, it was to show, in essays as well as symposia, that humanistic thinking has relevance for contemporary life. Now almost a decade old, The Point is a major journal of ideas that occupies a unique space in American letters. It adheres to no specific political or social agenda, but always features excellent and compelling writing about politics and society. Its essays blend memoir, criticism, and journalism in a manner that's intellectually challenging but distinctly approachable. The point is, in the words of Leon Wieseltier, intellectually serious, independent, far-reaching, spirited, and elegant, a stirring act of resistance against the shrinkage of intellectual life in our culture of takeaways and metrics. Today we hear from co-founder and co-editor Johnny Thacker about The Point. All that's coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Johnny Thacker, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast and talking with me. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. So you are, along with John Baskin and Ete Zwick, an editor of The Point magazine, which you publish out of Chicago. Just briefly for listeners, could you describe The Point? So what, what are the aims of the magazine? Yes, so The Point is a magazine of long-form articles uh, that try to go beyond what you'd go beyond what you'd find in most magazines, just in terms of kind of intellectual range and depth, um, but also being kind of elegantly written and appealing. So it's sort of attempts to invite people into a world of of reflection on their own lives and. That, that mandate allows us to do lots of different things. So when you actually arrive at an issue, you, uh, you would find uh, some personal essays, long form, um, very long form sometimes, maybe up to even 10,000 words would be some of our longest pieces, um, personal essays that uh, really try to grapple with something in the author's own life, mm. uh, typically by means of thinking through the thoughts that other people have had about those kinds of phenomena, but not always. And then we'd also have articles that are treatments of, say, a, a literary author, like David Foster Wallace uh, was one of the one of the best articles we've published was about David Foster Wallace. So it's just a long treatment of him. Uh, but then we've also had things on, say, the historian David Brian Davis, a really long um, treatment of him. And then we have much smaller pieces, which are 
say uh, it can't fall into two categories. One is the one is symposium pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, so each issue will have a symposium on a given topic, um, and it always has the form of like what is something for, what is X for. So what is politics for? What is sport for? What is the left for? What are animals for? You know this kind of thing. Uh, so that allows us to have shorter articles that are maybe between 1,500 and 4,000 words. Uh, typically, they're about 2,000 or 2,500 words. And then we have the last section, which is reviews, uh, where we don't do we don't really do normal book reviews, but things that are um, sort of they try to go beyond um, the normal topics of reviews. So we we. We had a review of uh, of a year once, like 1994. Um, I think we've had a review of uh, a phenomenon, like small talk, review of the phenomenon of small talk. Um, we've had a review of the Creation Museum early on. Mm. Uh, so we we try and we try and have reviews that sort of a little offbeat, if you like. Um, that there are opportunities for small essays about about everyday life. Well, there are a couple of those points I, I, I want to pursue, especially the symposia, because I think that that category of, of work or of, of article that you have consistently sort of sets your magazine apart. It's very interesting. Another thing that I want to touch on, though, that is distinct about your magazine is your policy about the, the magazine's own politics. I think you, you write on your about page, quote, the point adheres to no specific political or social agenda. Now, most magazines surely have their political slant, though not all state it explicitly. Why come out and establish at the outset that your goal as a magazine is not to advance a kind of unified political vision? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, and it is something that has ended up uh, being relatively definitive of us, I think. Mm. Uh, we, we didn't set out for it to be definitive mm. of us, I should say. Um, what we set out to do was to promote, uh, was to produce a magazine that promoted uh, serious thinking on the part of the reader, uh, without that meaning kind of academic thinking, um, but but genuine thinking where you might actually change your mind about things, and that just seemed to us to be antithetical to um, the idea of of setting out with a defined political agenda. Hmm. Uh, that is sort of known in advance and even just present throughout throughout the uh, magazine. So what we would like is for our um, reader to come to the magazine and find themselves surprised. So it could be that you, you finish one essay and you turn the page and you get to an article by someone who's making a kind of natural law argument against gay marriage. Mm -hmm. like we publish something like that. Uh, that's not because we agree with that, but we think that we thought that it was a serious representative. It was a serious presentation of a view that is often dismissed uh, without good reason or dismissed hastily just on the basis of almost like hearsay about what, what these people are arguing. So we wanted to have that article in order to provoke the reader to really uh, think about his or her um, beliefs and commitments um, and we just don't think that's possible if you if you state in advance what what your political commitments are that's not to say of course that not that we don't have political commitments we we do as individuals have political commitments but we don't want the magazine to be a place where 
we are ruling ruling articles in or out based on whether they sort of serve the the political mm. good as we see it beyond one thing i should say i've talked for a while but just say one more thing which is that we do think that it is constitutive of the political good that we should be aiming for together as a society that it involves the examined life so we do think that like but just by just by promoting the examined life and, and making people uh, think hard about what their commitments really are we are actually advancing um, uh, the world towards you know where it would where we would want it to be at least uh, mm. in one of the aspects so I, th- I I do want to pursue this point of what makes your magazine distinct as well and I think this point you've been gesturing toward you, you stated it quite clearly earlier but I'll I'll put it uh, in the words of your website. You write, the point features, quote, philosophical writing that embodies two distinct but complementary convictions. On the one hand, that humanistic thinking has relevance for contemporary life. On the other, that our lives are full of experiences worth thinking about. So I'm, I'm wondering, what gap, if any, do you think this kind of writing, that is the sort of humanistic and reflective and philosophical but not that discernibly academic writing that you aim to publish, what gap does that fill in the current world of magazine writing? Yeah, well, I think there's a there, there is a gap. Um, I mean, you have uh, you have some magazines which take up topics that are of everyday interest uh, and interest about you know contemporary culture. They're of interest. To, to us as we think about our lives in contemporary culture. And I, I would say a magazine like The Atlantic is a perfect instance of this. There are plenty of articles which, which take up things like what it would be to date today, like mm-hmm. what, what dating is today or what parenting is today, that type of thing. But the way they actually treat them is not typically humanistic. You don't really have the sense of the author of the article wrestling with ideas uh, and and kind of bouncing arguments back and forth and trying to trying to really come out uh, um, the wiser. What you have is typically some kind of um, search for illumination by going to various uh, experts mm. like psychologists and uh, economists and so on. Uh, like so, so and so is professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University suggests that uh, people frequently find me- meaning in relationships <laughs> and X Y Z or you know it's all kind of third personal in a sense it, it, it's not really um, what we would think of as being the, the examined life um, so that's one kind of magazine that we 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 would take something from but really depart from and then you have these magazines like. Um, Boston Review, uh, where they're they're trying to sort of popularize the work of academics. So you read the Boston Review and you you you're stimulated to some degree, but you're always stimulated really in the way of thinking, well, I wish I could go and read the real thing, uh, because you know it's in the real. It's in the actual books that are being referred to that the the thought is being done. The the essays themselves, well, they're not really proper essays mm-hmm. in some sense. They're sort of reports. Um, they're they're simplifications. They're lectures. 
um, they're not actually the site of thought itself. Uh, whereas what we were looking to do, uh, whether or not we've succeeded is obviously another question, but what, what we were looking to do is to have a space where the reader really feels invited into a process of thought that's taking place in this essay, rather than just kind of uh, the essay being a sort of report from a report about what work has been done in like the lab, as it were, like the mm -hmm. lab of real thought at the university level. So that's the second kind of magazine. And then probably just a third and final kind of magazine would be uh, ones which are, um, well, we've already sort of alluded to them, but much more directly uh, political and um, sort of self-consciously leftist for the most part. And um, I mean, there's a whole array of, of those magazines. Yeah, yeah. for instance, uh, like, like which magazines would immediately come to mind for you? Well, immediately, I would say the uh, the New Inquiry, the Jacobin mm. Descent, uh, the Nation, N plus One. Um, I mean, I'm not in any particular order, I should say. And obviously, they're all they're all different. I mean, there's a huge difference between, say, N plus One, which is a literary magazine, and Jacobin, which is a uh, really a a political entity um, in in its fundamental core. Um, you know, they wouldn't have articles on Jacobin about uh, about David Foster Wallace, for right. example, which M plus one would. Uh, but there is something in common there with, with these magazines, which is that they do tend to like to see themselves sort of on the right side of history or something like that. Like they, they want to see themselves as as political actors in a way where that involves being on one side rather than the other so sort of yeah taking sides as as an editorial group and um therefore keeping out other things like the role of the editor is always to decide what what comes in and what goes out and one criterion for those magazines is always um what what do we um agree with politically and you know that's that's perfectly valid obviously that's um that's a uh, very laudable goal in many ways, and I, I actually have zero problem with the with the existence or flourishing of those magazines, especially when you get it in its pure form, like like Jacobin, where they do a really good job and they know exactly what they're doing. But that's not what we're doing, and we we think there's a space for something else, a, mag a space for a magazine which isn't, as it were like centered on an ideal reader who is in their maybe late 20s living in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. taking themselves to be a certain kind of leftist. Um, there's a, for us, there's a kind of closed-mindedness in that, in that um, ambition to serve just that, that demographic. There's a kind of um, self-deception as well because um, there, there is a, Sort of self-congratulation uh, that can creep into the kind of politics where uh, that you produce when you're when you're aiming at such a narrow audience. There's a parochialism, if you like, and we kind of wanted to produce a magazine that stood back from the contemporary scene, uh, and didn't try and sort of be like setting the agenda for the literary scene or the political scene or what you should believe about this, what you should believe about that, uh, but rather kind of took a step back and was more philosophical uh in a in a sort of loose sense of that term um 
yeah, so we want it to be more philosophical mm. than either political or trendy or, or, or that kind of thing. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, so as, as you've said, though the point doesn't itself take a political, a de- definite political stance, the editors surely have, have political commitments of their own. I'm sort of wondering, in your position as an editor, how do you separate the political commitment or whatever political view a, a writer is advancing in her essay, say, from the intellectual rigorousness of her work. I, ideally, those two things could be separated. As, as an editor, you would want to approach an article with that kind of mindset if you were working for Point. But what? Mm. H- how do you do that, I guess is my question. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's tough. Obviously, one thing that people would say in response to what I said is, look, if you're, if you're, uh, if, if you're really thinking about things, then you end up... Um, you end up with political views, right. and those views are bound to color the way that you uh, you interpret what's good or bad. So that, you know, it's people might even go so far as to say, "Well, look, we would love to publish intelligent conservative writing. It's just that there isn't any." Right. Uh, you know, people will say that kind of thing sometimes. I mean, frankly, it, it, it's absurd, uh, but at the same time, you can see the underlying logic of it, um, because. If we're publishing an article by someone that uh, has a different political view from us, and I'm not, by the way, suggesting that the three of us actually have the same political mm-hmm. opinions either, but if, if, you're, if you're faced with an article that has a different um, uh, view from your own, it's not just a different perspective. It's not relativist like that. It, you, you think they're wrong. I mean, you know, you think there's a point at which they're going wrong. Um, but the question is, should, should you publish something where you think they're going wrong? And that's where the question is, is it interesting and challenging, not just provocative in the sense of, you know, shocking or something, but does it actually, does it actually make you, is it likely to make you the reader, um, think more deeply and more seriously about your own convictions. So sometimes we want to publish things that um, are, as I said earlier, just serious, um, serious treatments of views that you might otherwise be tempted to dismiss. Mm-hmm. So it's much worse for us, actually, if an article is similar to our view, has uh, propounds views that are similar to our own, that isn't actually interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not. It's not challenging. It's not. Um, it relies on kind of cliches, secondhand thoughts. Um, it doesn't really uh, subject itself to the rigors of of uh, real thought and you know objections and so on. Um, and sometimes a view can be serious in that kind of way, or an article can be serious in that kind of way. Without um, without being something that you agree with. So your your magazine is pretty young. You founded it in two thousand nine, right? I think that's mm-hmm. it. And and, yeah. and and you might be able to call to mind then many of the essays you've published um, that have proved to be either reader favorites or your own favorite. Can you think of any essays or reviews uh, that the magazine has published that you think best exemplify the aims of your magazine or its virtues? 
Yes, I can. I can think of a few, uh, quite a lot, actually. I mean, I would say one that I always come back to is an article we had in our second issue called Love in the Age of the Pickup Artist. Mm. Uh, it's probably our most successful article um, in terms of online readership. Um, and that was an interesting one because it took on something that it took on something that was sort of in the air at the time, which was this movement of pickup artists who um, were widely reviled uh, for obvious reasons, I think. Is that the book, The Game? I remember exactly. hearing about Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's The Game and, yeah. and maybe other things related to that. I think there might have been a TV show or mm -hmm. something. I'm not too sure. But in any case, these were books basically about how to pick up women and they, they involved sort of... Um, crude psychology or amateur psychology and and so on and so they were and also basic manipulation so it, you know they were reviled um and it's not surprising that they were but the author of our article kind of weaves in weaves the pickup artists into a, a personal narrative involving his own love life and his inability to kind of maintain lasting um, uh, lasting kind of eroticism within a relationship. And he basically suggests that you can kind of, if you abstract the, if you extract some of the kind of way of thinking from the pickup artists without actually kind of uh, endorsing their goals of sort of manipulating and using people, then you can actually learn something about what, what, uh, eroticism is and you can then reinsert that into the context of like a loving relationship mm. it's, a, it's a very interesting argument and it, it I've, I've undersold it in the sense that it goes by way of of the 19th century french novelist Stendhal so a large part of it is really a treatment of Stendhal on the problem of like eroticism in in, in loving relationships and so I like that article because, well, one thing is it's, it's very well written. It's very captivating as like a personal narrative. But it also, it kind of embeds serious thought about what love actually is with a treatment of kind of contemporary pop culture about love and a treatment of um, some kind of classic treatment, th thoughts about love, and all, all in the service of, of an actual argument. Mm. So I think it's very that's a very successful essay, in my opinion, for for what we're as an example of what we're trying to do. We also had um, in our third issue. This is still I'm going you know beginning at the beginning in a way, but uh, in our third issue we had an article that was about the uh, video game Call of Duty. Uh, I think it was Call of Call of Duty 2, or I, I forget, anyway. It was the highest grossing video game of all time, at least at the time. And the, the article was written by uh, a man named Joshua Castile, who was an Iraq uh, veteran, Iraq war veteran, who had actually um, been an interrogator at Abu Ghraib. He was in part of the team that, that sort of took charge after the... Um, scandal and i mean it's a, it's a very sad story in the end because uh josh died later from cancer which was related to his his service there but he 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 became a conscientious objector in iraq 
and resigned, I believe, and and sort of did a did a became something of a kind of celebrity conscientious objector in the sense of like doing tours uh, to 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 explain his perspective, uh, meeting the Pope, you know, that kind of thing. We had him review uh, this computer game. And it was sort of, it's an essay that has a kind of electricity about it because, again, you have a kind of interweaving of a, of a personal story, which is this guy coming to the grips, coming to grips with his own training as a soldier and uh, his own experiences in war with this kind of pop culture phenomenon of um, of this computer game and the first person shooter and so on but then also integrated with with um, a kind of analysis of the history of of military training techniques and the way in which video games have actually become part of part of training troops to be desensitized so that they can kill more efficiently so it was a very kind of clever piece again that that had a sort of combination of of analysis and and pathos hmm. uh, and you know we we've had a, we've had a couple more uh that, that are like that i mean we we just had one uh amazing article in our last issue by someone called Ben Jeffrey who's written for us um many occasions that also does that kind of thing in terms of balancing a personal story which has incredible pathos to it which is him going home to northern ireland after the death of his father and sort of being haunted by the memories and trying to come to grips with this come to terms with it and he's he's um he's interspersing that with a treatment of marilyn robinson's novels and her her understanding of of families and what what's at stake in family life, so I guess those are three articles that I would say I think are quite definitive of the kind of thing that we're or exemplary of the kind of thing that we're really aiming for um, at, at, at the best. Um, you know, when it turns out best, it looks like that. It's kind of it's articles that are philosophical in the sense of people really searching themselves you know they're examining their lives but at the same time examining something that's out there in the culture in such a way that i think the reader um the reader kind of has an experience of thought as integrated into into contemporary life uh, rather than being sort of say an academic preoccupation that is then disseminated to hmm. to to readers well i'm so interested in this idea of or, or this vision of bringing together the philosophical and literary essay with the personal narrative or a, a phrase you used about a minute ago that was so interesting was bringing together analysis and, and pathos. So I'm, I'm wondering, I kind of want to dig a bit deeper into why you and your co-editors initially really wanted to, to start a magazine that was going to do that, especially as, as you were all at the time, I think, um, grad students at Chicago's Committee on Social Thought, right? Mm, yeah. So it's it's said, I, I read it, I, I think in an article about your magazine, that, that you three, uh, you along with Baskin and, and Zwick, conceived of the magazine in a pub. So I'm wondering, can you describe that scene to us and what you were 
talking about. So I, I, I thought as I was reading about that, that perhaps you were feeling in some sense dissatisfied with purely academic publishing and perhaps you also wanted to revitalize the Chicago literary and cultural scene because I know some magazines in Chicago had had um, sort of that sort of ended before you started the point so I'm wondering you know do you remember what beer you were having I'm, I'm sort of I'm just, I'm just I'm wondering you know what were the motivations even if they were uh, even if it was just uh, a few drinks yeah, we we were probably sharing a picture of PBR or something. It wouldn't have, wouldn't have <laughs> right. been very uh, grad students. You know, yeah. yeah, we were grad students. It, it wouldn't have been very elite. But no, yeah, it's true. We were in the University of Chicago pub, um, we um, which is a sort of underground uh, underground affair that has it does have a certain charm and character. It has to be said. Um, I think you're 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 right in, in in what you what you pointed to. Really, I mean, I think we found that we would have conversations as a result of our graduate classes. We would have very kind of stimulating conversations in which we would think about contemporary culture and hence our own lives in terms of the people we were reading. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you, when you really study, um, Plato, which is, you know, I always come back to Plato, when you really study uh, Plato, you you find after a while that you start kind of seeing your own life and culture through his uh, through his eyes in a way, and it, and it suddenly appears quite strange to you, and, and you start kind of using his terms for thinking about people, like what kind of person is that person, what's, what's driving them, you you, you, um, you interpret that in terms of um, Plato's tripartite vision of the soul. Um, for example, it's not only that. Obviously, there's plenty, plenty of other, other things. But uh, the same, yeah, the same is true of you know Joyce or whatever. We we would take courses. Committing on social thought is extraordinarily broad. So we would be taking courses on all of these things. It could be uh, I took a course on Joyce's Ulysses at the same time, same term as I took a course on uh, the Republic and on uh, critical theory, for example. So or, or Marx, something like that. So um, it was it was a very broad education that kind of fostered these conversations. Mm. But at the same time, you're sort of aware that academia isn't really the place for those conversations like it's not it's not the place for the conversations about how um how the works that you've been reading how they could bear on on your own lives so it wasn't exactly a, just a sort of critique of academia um but more a question of well there's something else there you know there's another kind form of activity um that uh that is possible um, intellectually and, and as both both in terms of your thought and in terms of your writing, and then what spaces are there for that? And it's hard to really see uh, to find the spaces. Um, so basically, you know, you you create your own. Um, you create your own, and you you see where it, where it'll go, and if you can make a success of it. Um, I mean, it helps that uh, I think. Itai at the time was taking a course on journalism. Uh, John had had some experience after college in the journalism world, sort of fact-checking, that kind of thing. 
Mm. Uh, like just being involved in a relatively low end with magazines, maybe writing for book forum and so on. And I had started a magazine um, at Oxford as an undergrad. So we kind of had like some feeling that we could do it, uh, but we didn't know where it would go. Um, we didn't know really um, what we were aiming for in terms of the medium term or something. We just thought, let's make an issue and see, see how it goes. Well, that that's just that that's another question I have because it seems like, uh, sure, it, it's it's a fun idea to sit in a pub and imagine, um, you know, starting a magazine. It would be obviously another thing entirely to actually get get it done, you know, and collect yeah. the funds and do all of the sort of business or entrepreneurial things that are also required in in, in starting something. So, could you t- just describe to listeners as well? what that was like and what you had to do in order to establish the magazine as an, you know, as a thing in the world that exists and that produces, um, some kind of product. Yeah, it's difficult. It's still difficult. Um, that, that's, you know, um, won't surprise you. Um, it's also true that we, um, we did not have anything like the kind of, um, let's say it's it, this is it's too inflated to say this but wisdom about it that we have now mm. we don't we don't we we really um didn't think really enough about the business side of the magazine actually i mean we, we were able to get it done because it's not actually that expensive to print um say a thousand copies of a magazine uh it, it maybe costs something like two thousand five hundred dollars or it, it did at the time um, and we were able to get a small uh, grant. I think we got, I think we maybe got something like three thousand dollars from uh, um, under from a from a university body that gave money to students. Um, it was like some kind of startup startup mm. grant from a from a student um, organization. I think um, I forget what it's called now. But um, in any case, so so the initial thing once we got that first issue done then we would organize parties and we would make money from the parties because uh you'd have maybe well but by the time we were maybe our fourth or fifth issue we had maybe 400 people coming to a party and they were being closed Mm. down by the cops you know so there were like there were there was a lot that was a source of income for us which obviously has nothing to do with the magazine whatsoever except for the fact that you'd have to buy a copy in order to get in i see so so were these like release parties for the magazine they were okay yeah, they were release parties. And yeah, as I say, you'd either have to be a subscriber or to buy a copy to get in. And then we had like relatively uh, cheap drinks and so on. Um, so, you but know, it, that... it had to have become fashionable to go to these parties if you had like 400 people there. How, how would you, I mean, was there a culture that, I guess my question is, was there a culture or general readership that developed around the magazine pretty quickly? And if so, how and why do you think that happened? Yeah, it's a good question. You're making me think because it is true that we actually sold out of our first print run. We sold out. We had Your first? To, yeah, wow. our first, yeah. We actually had to reprint. Like we went back and reprinted, which is very expensive because, you you know, it's much more expensive to, to have to reprint than to, to do, um, uh, to, to print more in the first place. And in fact, 
if you try to buy our, our like box set of issues, it begins at two because although one is still available, it's a precious commodity. So uh, there's very few of them. So I, I don't. It's true. I don't really know uh, quite <laughs> quite what happened. Uh, how how we managed to get that. Uh, the, that sort of recognition. I think you know one thing is we did make a big effort in terms of trying to get uh, university uh, students to um, to get excited about it. Uh, we also the big article that sort of um, uh, um, the the article that sort of brought us to lots of people's attention from that first issue was um, my co-editor, John Baskin, his article on David Foster Wallace that mm. I actually alluded to earlier. I think that got shared pretty widely, and it was, a, it was fairly early in, um, in the sort of... Wallace had died that year, I think, and he committed suicide. Right. And I think it was fairly early in a movement to seeing that there was something really serious about his novels um, that uh, had to do with the problem of irony. Um, and so uh, that really captured people's attention. I think it's also the case, though, that the 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 article that was like the the first essay in that issue won a Pushcart Prize. So oh wow, uh, yeah. yeah. So it I, I can't really explain how exactly we did it, but um, I mean obviously the internet is a great leveler because you you do get to. Um, uh, reach a wider audience quite fast. We maybe had some publicity about us in in local um, newspapers, but not much. And that's when I say about the when I say that looking back we'd do it differently. Looking back, we would uh, we would really need to hire someone for the business side. You know, someone to take on the business side. We just didn't um, we didn't begin thinking of ourselves as a business proposition. And the difficulty is that you have really, as when you're starting a magazine, your biggest time, your biggest opportunity to get publicity is at the start. Mm -hmm. you know, it's your first issue. So you, you actually want to make sure that you've cultivated contacts and that you've, you've kind of got articles into various places in order to make that initial splash. And we, we've seen other magazines do that very successfully. We did not do that. We were just a total kind of sleeper, uh, sleeper grower, if that makes it sleeper phenomenon or sleeper. I can't even call us a hit because we're not a hit. But like you know, that's the we grew very slowly, um, with with very little sense of of um, of the way the business world actually works. I can't. I can't. I don't really have any great wisdom about um, about that that you know would help other people begin um, in that sense. But so I'd like to ask just a bit about you as well so um first uh wh where did you grow up and uh and go to school I, I was at oxford as an as an undergrad um and i did um politics philosophy and economics which is a sort of catch-all degree at oxford that um is sort of designed to um furnish the uh political elite of mm. uh, of the country, it's a, it's a degree that someone like David Cameron would have done, for example. But then the um, writers do it. The, uh, Christopher Hitchens had it too, as well, right? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, obviously, it's not what everyone does. It's, it's it's sorry, it's not the reason that everyone does it. It certainly wasn't the reason that I did it. I'm, I was just kind of poking fun at myself a little bit because that's <laughs> it is the sort of cliched like PPE at Oxford. It's the sort of cliched thing where you kind of expect like 
that the person is uh, going to go on to, I don't know, be be something um, you know important in the in the elite somewhere or other. Uh, but I, I ended up, um, I mean, I began uh, being interested in the ideas and I ended up being interested in the ideas. So I, uh, I, I drifted into, um, into academia. Which, which college? Uh, at Oxford? Yes. A uh, new college. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I was at new college. So I had, yeah, I had the opportunity to have some really great teachers and, uh, and I, like I said, I actually started a magazine there as well. And it was called The Owl. And it was basically the idea was that the readers would write the article. So there wasn't like a kind of a club of people who were mm. the writers, which is true at most most university magazines. The idea was that anyone would be able to write so that it wouldn't just be this kind of clique. And uh, it was a kind of intellectual magazine that would yeah stimulate people but not require any expertise. So you could sort of see there's some, there's some link there. In terms of uh, in terms of how the point ended up being, but it's also true that as a result of that, when I left Oxford, I, I wasn't sure that I wanted to be an academic at all. I, I thought that journalism might be a possibility, but uh, but at the same time, I also thought that I had a lot more to to learn in order to become an interesting intellectual journalist. So so I went to grad school. Right. So did you go to grad school right after uh, Oxford then? Yeah, I did actually. And that was probably a feature of not really knowing what I was going to do that year. <laughs> yeah, it was it, it was all very happenstance. Um, I mean, in in the last year of my time at Oxford, there was an email sent around about studying in America. And I'd heard that people go for a year sometimes to study in America after Oxford. So I thought I'd go to this thing. It seemed like, you know, probably a decent thing to do to spend a year in America um, and uh, before coming back to, to decide what I actually wanted to do. I went to this meeting and they basically said, look, you should apply for PhDs mm. because they, if you get funding, then they fund your master's. So, um, so I, I, I applied for a couple of things and, it, and got in and then it was like, oh, you're actually offering to pay me to, for like four years to come and, <laughs> come and study. Well... That sounds just great. <laughs> At the time, like sixteen thousand five hundred dollars seemed like, which was the which was the fellowship. That just seemed like huge. I mean, it's just like you're paying me to think this is and learn. This is great. So there was no way I was going to refuse that. Um, so I, I off I went to to America. So I, I remember hearing in an interview once, and this is not this is not a direct quote, but I remember Michael Walzer, uh, the founder of Descent, saying in an interview that he really couldn't have gotten through grad school um, at Brandeis if he hadn't founded and written for Descent, because he he always wanted to have at least a part of his brain, you know, in in the world of action, in the world of people doing things, and he wanted to write about and comment about that, and not just remain in academia. Did you? Did you feel that way um, uh, in, in grad school as well? And did, did that contribute to your wanting to found the point? And, and were you writing for other places at the time too? Yeah, you know, I, I wrote a little bit for a magazine called Spiked, um, which is an online thing. Uh, I'd done an internship there the, the, the summer after I left Oxford, um, but I fell out with them. It turned out that they were very um, doctrinaire hmm. themselves and uh yeah, they were really pushing a, 
a particular kind of political agenda that I, I didn't agree with either. So it wasn't even like I, I could just slip in uh, undetected and write for them. So I stopped that. And then I, I guess I, I sort of focused mostly on my academic work. It wasn't um, uh, social thought is not like most graduate programs. Mm. You're not being professionalized in anything like the same way. Um, which is why you could take courses in, you know, Euripides, Joyce, and uh, and like Plato or whatever Hegel in the same term. Like this is not what any professional graduate school program would do, or any professionalizing graduate program, right? That you know, it's it's not leading you into becoming an expert in in a narrow field. So in that sense, I had a less imperative than I would have done if I'd been at a, another graduate program um, to 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 do it. Um, I think I would have probably ended up writing um, once once my once I was more sort of settled in terms of my dissertation topic and so on. I probably would have ended up writing somewhat for a wider audience anyway. But I wouldn't really say that it was in my case um, exactly frustration with with. Uh, with academia. What I would say is that in my mind, um, you know, maybe, I, maybe I, I shouldn't say this, I should say this off the record or something, but in my mind, academia was in some way subordinate in the hierarchy of priorities to the kind of writing that I was able to do with the point. Mm. Because as I said, Part of the reason for going to grad school, in fact, maybe most of the reason for going to grad school for me was to try and become a more sophisticated thinker so that when I wrote the kind of thing I felt I was already able to write in some way, like write for writing intellectual journalism, it would actually be genuinely good and interesting right. rather than rather than sort of second rate. Um, so I always sort of felt like one reason I was in grad school was that. So... In that sense, um, I really wasn't sure that I wanted to end up as an academic. So if, if you see what I mean, it was yeah. like I, I was always tending in that direction. So it, it, it didn't come as a sort of an escape for me, but almost like as a as the fruition. I mean, that in fact, that's part of the part of the notion with the title. The point is that surely this is the point, <laughs> you know, the point mm -hmm. of the point of uh, of serious thinking is to um, address your own life and to to communicate with people uh, about how we should be living um, it does it's not like some kind of sideshow it's not like um, well I ought to do my this is the way philosophers will sometimes talk about it, like I ought to do my kind of public service by kind of um, writing the occasional popular article uh, that, as I said, is sort of the Boston Review type of model, where where you are like l essentially lecturing. It's like you you go to like a, um, you go to an environment outside the university, and you kind of you provide a simplified lecture on or, uh, explaining what it is that you do and so on. That that that's not really the hierarchy of ends for me. Um, for me, the best kind of writing is the kind of writing that is importantly personal like it really there's something at stake in it and you can feel that there's something at stake in it for the author uh, themselves but they are also thinking very very seriously at kind of the highest level and in touch with the the greatest minds of you know past and present 
um, their thinking, but the goal of that thinking and theorizing is ultimately to enrich their, their understanding of their own world. So yeah, that, that, that for me was the goal. And then when, when uh, John and Itai came along and it became possible for us together to do this, uh, that just meant I was able to sort of in a way advance advance in in getting closer to to being able to do that kind of writing you know so that i think that's a that's a great point to end on actually johnny thanks thanks so much for talking with me sure thank you that was johnny thacker co-editor and co-founder of the point magazine common ground is a podcast brought to you by the howenstein center at grand valley state university the director of the howenstein center and producer of this podcast is gleaves whitney Kadar Jabbar and Rachel Bills edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual progressive conservative conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies. And oh, what a year it's been for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at JoeHoganCGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.